What's up, everybody? Great to see you. So glad that you're back. So glad that I'm back. Um, uh, Jameson mentioned we were here two weeks ago and then COVID, and that included me. So I uh, am over it now and had a really pretty light case of it, but so glad to be back with you guys this week and so excited to have my friends here with me. It's really, really fun to have brilliant friends. So we are in this series going deeper. On Sunday mornings, over the course of the weeks of January and February, we're talking about the story of God. We're talking about the big story of the Bible. But inevitably, when you read the story of the Bible, you encounter some really challenging kinds of questions along the way. And so we wanted to create a space where we could dive deeper into some of those really challenging questions. And and some of the questions that arise when you read the story of the Bible and think about our lives in the 21st century today center around um, the relationship between men and women. This last week on Sunday morning in uh, the the series, you heard a message, I hope you heard it, go listen to it if you didn't, um, about Abraham, the call of Abraham, and God's election of Abraham and the nation of Israel to be his people through whom he would carry forward his rescue mission in the world. And yet, when you read the story of Abraham, it gets a little messy, even with regard to understanding their relationship between men and women in the Bible, right? Abraham, who's married to Sarah, who has a child with Hagar, and it just gets messy. And so I thought this was a great opportunity for us to, to, to do a little bit of going deeper in here around issues regarding men and women in the Bible and the ancient world. And I have two friends who have joined me tonight. I want to introduce them to you. I'm going to introduce them in the order of how long I've known them. So I'm going to start right over here with my good friend, Dr. Sam Wan. Sam and I have known each other, it'll be 25 years uh, this fall. We uh, started Dallas Seminary together as master's students in the fall of 1997 and really got forced into community. Uh, We got put together in a spiritual formation group and... um, that group literally changed the trajectory of my life. I have taught at Dallas Seminary for 15 years in the area of spiritual formation. And the reason for that is that I was put into a spiritual formation group that God used as an enormously important part of my formation. And a big part of that was my friendship with Sam. Uh, Sam has a, a doctorate in pharmacy and then also a doctorate in the Old Te- a PhD in Old Testament. And so uh, he comes with a lot of uh, a deep knowledge of the Old Testament that will uh, be evident as you hear from him tonight. So that's uh, Sam, my friend, Dr. Sam Juan, and then uh, Nancy Frazier. Nancy and I have known each other for about six years. Oh, 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 oh. In my introduction of Nancy, I was going to tell, tell you all that she was going to tease me tonight because it's kind of her love language. So you're already getting a sense of that. So uh, Nancy came into my classroom in 2016 as a master's uh, student at Dallas Seminary. And I will tell you, in 15 years of teaching at DTS, there's a very small circle of students that stand out in my memory as just exceptionally brilliant. And then there's a very small circle of students who stand out in my memory as just people that I dearly love and, and just connected with at a relational level. And, and Nancy occupies both of those very small circles. She is uh, a brilliant uh, scholar and a, a, a dear, dear friend. Um, she is finishing a PhD in systematic theology uh, at Dallas Seminary. And she and her husband, Tristan, who's here on the front row. Tristan, wave for everybody to see you. Mm-hmm. Uh, she and her husband, Tristan, are here at IBC. Uh, Sam and his family are new IBCers. And so not only is it great to have brilliant friends, but it's great to have brilliant friends who are IBCers. So, yeah, let's welcome Sam and Nancy tonight. Um, 
So we want to just dive right in. I mentioned to you part of the jumping off point for the conversation tonight. It really is going to be a conversation. Part of the way this is going to go is, is we're going to just talk to each other and, and you guys can listen in and, and there'll be an opportunity for you to ask questions, but very much a dialogue uh, tonight. And uh, I said the jumping off point is in this story, we, we encounter Abraham and Sarah, Abraham, the, the great father of faith, and yet the story is messy as it relates to the relationship between men and women, and in some ways highlights some of the messier parts of our Bibles when it comes to these issues. And so what we want to do is we want to actually dive right in, but, but to do so, to go all the way back to the beginning, to God's creational intention. You know, when Jesus is confronted by some uh, uh, teachers of the law, they come to him with a question regarding uh, marriage and divorce. And rather than directly answering their question, he takes them all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the book of Genesis, all the way back to God's creational intention. And this is a great place to start because when you see Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God's intention for his creation, God's intention for humanity, there's a lot for us to unpack here um, regarding God's um, vision for men and women. And particularly, um, and I hope you brought a Bible, I hope you brought a notebook, because we're going to be jumping around to a whole bunch of passages. But in particular, when we talk about God's creational intention for men and women, I think the place to begin is in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26 and 27, where God uh, creates human beings in his image. Uh, Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over all the livestock and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so, Nancy, why don't we start with you just a little bit. Talk, talk to us a bit about the significance of this idea of human beings created in the image of God and then what you see here in terms of the importance of the Genesis storyteller underscoring both men and women made in the image of God. Yeah, and so before we get to that place, right, what, what you see is this repeated refrain in the days of creation. God is creating, he is acting, and everything is good. And so maybe you've heard that by the time we get to the creation of humanity, they're the pinnacle of, of his creation. Um, and, and so there's some kind of weighty importance there. But then the fact that they are the only part of creation that is said they're created in God's image. So this is setting men and women, human beings apart from all of God's good creation. And so that really sets apart human beings to begin with. But then you've got that verse that you read for us, right? He created them male and female. And there's this refrain of the maleness and femaleness that could have been skipped over because, you know, you've got this general word for humanity that also kind of is the word that we use to, you know, refer to Adam. And so it's just kind of a general word, but we don't keep it there. Moses, the, the scriptural writer, doesn't keep us there. He actually makes it very clear. Male and female are both created in the image of God. And I think what we see there is kind of the importance of our diversity as men and women, right? That the diversity is, is intentional. The diversity is necessary. The diversity is both part together. Together men and women are the ones who image God, right? So it's not like 
there was a theologian a few years back who kind of tried to say females aren't really necessary for the, the femaleness is not necessary for imaging of God. But that's really hard to support when we go to Genesis 1, because what we see there is saying he created humanity in the, fem- in the image of God. He created them both male and female in the image of God. And also what you see, I think, is some equality there, right? To say we're both full of dignity. And this imaging of God is something that is really hard to understand. And I think theologians have kind of wrestled and have said, well, what does this mean? Is this something inherent? Is this something that you do? Is this something that's been marred? Is this something that you can lose? Um, but what you do see is that it's particular to humanity, that we are God's representatives, and there is something about us that, that connects the world that says there is a God who created us, and he is good. And we come at that point. So it's that kind of... Yeah, that's so great. We, we uh, gosh, spent, what, an hour or more two weeks ago talking about Genesis 1, and I just barely, in some ways, got to, to touch on this because of running out of time. And yet one of the things that even we underscored that it's connected to what you're saying is um, you see here dignity and purpose. Right, that, that, that God creates human beings with this unmatched dignity in all creation because they alone are said to bear his image and this idea of purpose, the idea of let them rule, fill, and subdue. And what you find is the underscoring of both male and female, both men and women share the same kind of dignity and the same kind of purpose. And it seems to me that, that this is an enormously important starting point for everything else we might want to say about the Bible because... Um, this is, this is where it all begins. And in fact, the whole idea of a creation story is it is setting the trajectory of the kind of culture uh, that, the, that the, the biblical storyteller is intending to create uh, with God's people that begins from this place of an equal sense of dignity, an equal sense of, of, of calling and, and purpose. And I think I would add to that community in that. So dignity, purpose, and I think the, the communal nature of that. So you don't see the creation of one, you know, here is creature man and it's sufficient. It's that this diversity that you see is a reflection not only in humanity and what is true of us, but really a reflection of the Godhead, right? The one God who is three, that he is unity and diversity all in one. That I think you see reflected even, I mean, I can't, I can't, but connect the idea of male and female being created in the image of God with that theological sense of the unity and yet diversity in the Godhead. Yeah, yeah. so good that this theme of unity and diversity that is woven throughout the pages of the Bible, we'll eventually get back even talking about um, our passion at IBC to become a a more fully multi-ethnic church because there again is this unity and diversity that is a part of what it means to image, to, to picture God. Sam, you've been sitting listening. Any, any thoughts that you have from no, what we've said so far? It was really good. Um, and I, One thing I thought was, I hate that I can't take notes from what y'all say while we're doing <laughs> this up here. So somebody out there, take really good notes and email them to me, okay? Um, and I think it's worth considering, and I don't have an answer for what this fully means, but I do think it's um, really powerful to reflect on the fact that at this point in the narrative, God has only been described in one way, and that's a spirit. Mm. And so um, when it says that we are created in his image, Mm. it goes way deeper than some sort of physical Mm. representation. Mm. And so I I think that's 
I, I don't know. I'm not the theologian. I told you this. <laughs> the reason I actually chose to go into Old Testament was because in some ways it's safer. Because I can just read some Hebrew and say, well, this is what I think it's saying. And so I don't have the theological um, muscles to go much further. Barry's good at that. Nancy, that's her thing. But I do think it's just significant from a narratival standpoint that... Um, what we have a tendency to do sometimes is read the incarnation back into the Old Testament. And I'm not saying Jesus is not in the OT. Please don't take that and say, gosh, this guy came and said there's no Jesus in the OT. But I will say this, sometimes we have to let the story unfold progressively. Yeah, yeah. And at this point, the only thing God has been called is spirit. Yeah. And, and yet we are said to have been created in his image. One of the things that uh, that makes me think of is even as, as Jameson was saying earlier, what we tried to do, what I tried to do two weeks ago is really think about how we read this story um, set against the ancient Near Eastern backdrop, um, which again, that's me, the theologian, the pastor trying to sort of wade into some of Sam's territory, but um, that this, this concept of a human being made in the image of God is actually something that's not unique to Israel's story. That, that there are other ancient Near Eastern cultures that had a conception of human beings made in the image of God, the difference being on those other ancient stories, it was one human being. It was the king. And that everybody else lived to serve the king, right? If we take the, the traditional view of this is Moses writing in the period of Israel's wandering in the wilderness after coming out of Egypt, right? Egypt's king was the, thought of as a son of one of their gods, uh, or the, the, the image of one of their gods. And, and so here again is so important to say, you know, Israel's story is so different than their neighbor stories because on the neighbor stories, there's one who's the image of God and everybody else exists to serve that one. And on Israel's story, it's no, every human being, every human being is made in the image of God, male and female made in the image of God. This is, this is culturally radical stuff in the ancient world. And it's the beginning point from which we sort of move forward um, with the biblical story. Any other thoughts on, on what we've sort of covered so far with Genesis 1 before kind of flipping the page to talk about Genesis 2? So Genesis 2, this was going to be where we kind of did a deep dive, Genesis 2 and 3, a deep dive last week, and because of COVID, we kind of had to, to skip over some of that. I, I want to tie some loose ends together from some things I said at the very end last time, and then uh, maybe toss it to Sam for a little more color on this. But um, I suggested to you last time, one of the things you see in Genesis 1, and I think in Genesis 2 as well, is this idea of uh, highly stylized uh, account of real historic events. And somebody kind of asked the question of like, well, highly stylized, how do we know that the virgin birth story isn't a highly stylized? I think that there's elements in the story itself that really point to that um, in terms of reading the literature, reading the story that we have here. And so when we have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, um, these are not just normal Hebrew names. Adam, Adam, means human. Um, Eve means life. She's called the mother of all the living. Um, the Garden of Eden, the, the word Eden, it means delight. So here we have human and life in a garden called the light with a talking snake and these two sort of mysterious, seemingly almost magical trees. And 
It can be easy when you point it out that way for people to go, oh, well, do we have here that's just a fairy tale? And I want to make clear that that wasn't what I was suggesting. Um, I believe that these are highly stylized accounts of real historic events. Part of why it's important to maintain that there's historicity behind this is it becomes really difficult to read some aspects of what the New Testament has to say about Adam in particular if you lose a historical figure of Adam. And yet, what we have here is the way this story is told is in this very highly stylized way. Adam and Eve become archetypal humans, uh, representatives of humanity, of the human race. And for us to try to tease out, well, what's style and what's history is, a, is I think, one of those things that's an adventure in missing the point. Rather, to immerse ourselves in the story and say, what is the story trying to tell us about humanity and about God? So, Sam, let me kind of toss it to you because you had some, we, we got together the other day and, and, and Nancy and I are just sitting there sort of drinking it in some of <laughs> Sam's uh, uh, ideas about things we need to see in this story before we z- zero in specifically on what it has to tell us about um, men and women in particular. Yeah, and I just, um, I really appreciate what Barry just said. I think that um, when, when I teach students at the seminary about uh, the Old Testament, one of the things I stress to them is that Um, It's harder in some ways to read because we don't have the um, prepackaged didactic literature you have in the NT. When Paul writes, he's writing to teach. So you don't really have to do a whole lot of teasing out of his writings. He's telling you. Now, it's still hard to understand him at times. But in the Old Testament, what you find is that God is truly a storytelling God. And he's a beautiful and wonderful storytelling God. And so he's teaching us through story. And so that's really key. So Barry, um, when I hear him preach, a couple weeks ago I heard him preach, and I was just so um, thrilled because I don't um, hear enough preaching from the Old Testament, first of all. And there's this tendency we have sometimes as Christians to think of the Old Testament as either obsolete or as a kind of of null and void or irrelevant. And it's really not. It is the backdrop against which we can fully appreciate and understand the story of Jesus. So I'd like to just draw your attention to something that has always kind of troubled me, and that is, I think Eve gets a bad rap from many of us in in these circles when we talk about the story of the temptation and the fall. All the sisters in the room said, amen. (laughs) So I am going to try and uh, defend Eve a little bit. So if you guys will go to chapter 2, verse 16, and you're going to see this is where God, and this is really important for us, We have become so familiar with the story, sometimes we miss the little details. So I'm going to try to make this fresh for you. So 2.16 is where the Lord commands the men and the women, uh, the man and the woman, as to what the the setting is here in the garden. And the Eden, Barry is right, it's called delight. So right from the outset, we need to see Eden as this beautiful and ideal place for them to be. So then the Lord is speaking to them, and right off the bat, I think the English word commanded um, is the right word in, from the Hebrew, but I think it can sometimes create a tone that wasn't intended, and I'm going to show you what I mean. He says, uh, you may freely eat fruit 
from every tree of the orchard. And I'm going to stop right there. In the Hebrew, and I don't, since I'm not preaching, I can do this. And when you're preaching, you're not supposed to go into, oh, the Hebrew or the Greek. But I'm going to tell you guys, in the Hebrew, there's this wonderful construction where you have the word eat is repeated twice. Not in your English, but here's how it works. In the Hebrew, you have an infinitive paired with an imperfect. Uh, um, I'm sorry, an imperfect. Why we don't see it twice in the English is you don't see in your Bibles, I hope, like you may eating eat. Now, that's, you can do that with the Hebrew, but here's what God is actually doing. He's emphasizing the invitation to come and eat freely. Mm. So we have a tendency to read all of the injunctions in chapter 2 as permission and prohibition. But the best way to really understand the full impact of what God is saying is uh, invitation. And here's how that affects the way we then read the beginning of chapter 3. So the beginning of chapter 3 then comes... Uh, the narrator is going to give you some clues as to how we should read this exchange. He says, the serpent was more shrewd than any of the animals that the Lord God had made. This is not a throwaway detail. It's essential to how we're going to understand what happens next. What he's basically saying is, this is no ordinary conversation partner. Uh, that the woman is about to enter into a really difficult situation. And the narrator's letting you know that. And it helps better understand that she is not dumb or foolish as sometimes you'll hear this taught. So then here's what the serpent does. He says, um, he twists what God does, said, and he changes invitation into prohibition. See, that's an important rhetorical move. He changes the terms of the conversation. He changes the rules of the game. And Eve has no choice but to play. So here's what he says. Um, Is it really true that God said you must not eat from any tree of the orchard? There's so many rhetorical malformations there. He, he changes it to a negative, and then he changes it from, you may eat freely from every tree, to, is it really true you're not allowed to eat of any tree? I mean, he knows what he's doing. He's really good at this. So Eve's response is the natural rhetorical response to what the serpent set up. She has to protect God's integrity. So she said, well... Um, no, we may eat fruit from the trees of the orchard. See, she has subtly changed it to permission and not invitation. And in the Hebrew here, you do not see in her response the same grammatical construction you said it, saw in verse 16. So she's saying, we can eat from any tree except this one and that tree, then she goes as far as to say, not only can we not eat from, we shouldn't even touch it. Well, back in chapter two, if we were to go back and look, God never said you couldn't touch it. Um, and so Eve has been cornered by the serpent's rhetorical game. And it's not, I don't see here in the narrative 
an indication from the narrator that she's foolish or somehow inferior in her thinking or even in her morals. So this is more about the serpent's shrewdness than it is about Eve. But her flaw, if there is one, is that when she responded, she failed to remember the invitation and instead allowed the serpent to change it, the conversation to permission and that changes the entire tone mm. of how we view Eden. And so here's why this is so important. If I invited Barry and Nancy to my house, um, I ha I'm, I'm Korean, um, my wife is Korean, and so we love Korean food. But as good hosts, we would want to say to Barry and Nancy, hey, come on into the kitchen, whatever you see is yours, eat whatever's there. Oh, but there's this one jar over there by the window. I wouldn't touch that because that is bean paste that's fermenting. So it, it at some point will become this delicious Korean soup. But right now it smells like feet and, 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 and it doesn't taste good. It, and so I am not being legalistic and I'm not being ungenerous. What I am is saying, you can really eat pretty much anything that's good in my house. But I will warn you that there's something you may not want to eat for your own good. That's the spirit in which I would read chapter 2. But we rarely preach it or teach it that way. So then what happens is Eve gets framed slightly differently. Because now she comes across as just disobedient and rebellious. Uh, but I don't see that there. So that's kind of a, I, I hope I kind of helped restore Eve a little bit. Let me just say something. Mexican culture in, is an interrupting culture, and I'm trying to be really good and not interrupt because there's all of this stuff that Sam is saying. Um, I, I heard some of this the last time that we met, and I just wanted to jump at it because I, I had never heard this, right? I've been through seminary. I've never heard this teaching. But what I have heard is that question that gets posed by a lot of theologians or theologically inclined students who go, why would a good God place these trees in the garden in the first place, right? And what I didn't realize is that's actually buying into the the perspective of the snake it's like we falling into it and not not only questioning the you know eve's intelligence and morality and all of those things but now becoming questioning the good god that they we just spent like the first chapter kind of going over how good god is and now we're starting to question it and that's the i don't know if you've heard that theological question it comes up a lot if, he could, if they couldn't eat from it, why was it there? And it's really just an outworking of the snake's um, rhetorical device. Yeah. Thank you for letting me speak. That's, that's, that's a great point because I don't have any way to say this with any certainty, but I, I do believe that the tree had purpose. It's just that a lot of what you'll see, a pattern that you'll see often in Old Testament narrative is progressive that there's a progression to the story. Yeah. And so I, I kind of have this pet theory that had nothing gone wrong, that tree would have come into play at some point, but it was not the time or the place for that. Um, and that's why I kind of used my yeah. illustration. That jar that's over that there. Jar, I, I, you better not eat it now, because <laughs> it's going to smell bad, it's going to taste horrible. 
But when it's fully fermented and then Hannah makes it into the soup, it's going to be delicious. Mm. And I think you get a taste. There, there I go, interrupting. No, it's good. <laughs> you get a little taste of that in, in this idea that says Adam and Eve are banished from, they're, they're taken mm-hmm. out of the garden. And, and God says, hey, we can't let them eat from this tree. Yeah. And the idea, it sounds mean, right? Like they're not allowed to eat from the tree of life. But this is not the state that we want to live in forever, right. this broken, sinful state. So even in that sense, mm-hmm. um, and I think we do see the tree of life coming back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So good. Yeah. So good. So let's zero in a little bit. There's this place in chapter two that I think we've got we've to explore a bit because, right, we get the, the creation, right? So Genesis one, this sort of cosmic scope, six days of creation. God made everything. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. Then you get chapter two and, and the, the, the camera lens sort of zooms in from this cosmic scope in chapter one to more of a focus on uh, human beings, on, on Adam and, and Eve, on human and life. And you first see this God crafting the body of Adam, of human, um, and this beautiful intimate act of animation, this right, God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and man becomes a living being. Um, there's something here that's really important about embodiment. Even the, the languages um, that, 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 that this uh, Adam is, comes from the Adama, the, 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 the human comes from the, the, the hummus, and I don't mean chickpeas, right? I mean the, the, the dirt. Um, there's, a, there's an etymological connection there between the, the man and the dirt that you don't get in English. Um, and something really important about human embodiment, like part of what it means to be human is to have a body, not just a soul that happens to have a body, but to be embodied, sold, and sold bodies. But then you get this uh, moment that comes a little bit later where um, uh, Adam is there alone in the garden. And uh, uh, where do we want to pick up? Verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Um, And that word helper there uh, is the Hebrew word ezer, um, in the old uh, King James version, it's translated as help meet. I will make a help meet suitable for him. And I don't know what a help meet is, but it doesn't sound very appealing, does it? And so sometimes this verse actually can be pointed to as though here's a verse that kind of indicates a woman's sort of subordinate or, or lesser than position. I don't know who, who wants to jump in on Azer and talk a little bit about the I'll let the, Old <laughs> the, the Old Testament guy. Yeah. I don't have a lot to say other... I, I think the, the basic thing I want to say is, first of all, it's not a term of uh, diminution. Like, it's not meant to make the woman secondary. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to stress that. Because the way you see it used in the remaining remainder of the Old Testament is, it's used of God himself. So this term that is a powerful term of God's role and identity in other places being used of the woman cannot be mean that somehow it reduces her status. So I want to uh, stress that. And where it is used of God, it is in the sense of rescue. He comes to Israel's aid. He's, he's that helper. So not a helper in the, it's not hamburger helper. It's not, I'm going to just do the dishes for you, honey helper. It is like, The nations are conquering my people and they are a small people and but they do not have to fear 
because I am their Eitzer. And so that word used in that context is the same word used of woman. So now we do have to look at context and say, okay, well then what does it mean there? I'm just going to say, it, I look at it as God saw that man being alone was a cause for rescue. And that's what the woman was. It was the rescue. It's not, however, like an invitation to women to be like, you are alone and mm-hmm. I am your eighth sir, mm-hmm. and you need to be rescued and I'm here to rescue you either, just to put that one out there. Because I think what, what is happening is that you get this, this um, title of um, worth and dignity and value and, uh, in, in a society that's highly patriarchal. And I think that is radical in itself. But it's not, I, like, I, like, I don't want it to be like, you know, you're an Eitzer, so you're supposed to do all the heavy lifting, women, and then, you know, just come and rescue, you know, your man. And there's lots of stories out there about the man who needs rescuing, and that's just not it. I just want to put that out yeah, there as well. That's so good. But, right, so the, this language shows up oftentimes in the context of, of, of battle. So it's the one who comes alongside, right, and, and is able to help, uh, bring rescue, but I, I think that's so important that we um, point out even the way that this plays out. Sometimes this passage can actually be part of what's pointed to as um, a, a real tragedy in the history of the church of actually holding up marriage as sort of the ultimate epitome mm-hmm. of Christian existence. Right? It's not good for the man to be alone, so I will I will settle his problem of aloneness by providing a wife. Um, that God, in this scene, what we find is that God provides for the realities created human beings for intimate connection, right? We're all created for intimate connection, to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, to, to touch and to be touched. Um, in this case, and one of the ways that God supplies for human beings in that deep need he's created us for is through marriage. But it's not the only way that that deep need for connection is provided for. In the history of the church, unfortunately, the church in America, at least it seems to me, the contemporary church in America, has oftentimes either um, uh, openly, overtly, or, or, or sometimes more subtly, even the way that we design uh, our ministry programming, and has really held up marriage as though it's the, the ultimate in Christian existence. And while we're jumping ahead a little bit out of Genesis to address this, how do we get there when our Savior is a fully human person, right? Fully God and fully human, and was a single man. Uh, John the Baptist was a single man. Paul, we believe, was a single man, right? We have these really significant figures uh, in the history of of, uh, not only the Bible, but also then the remainder of the history of the church who are single people. Um, and so the, the, it's not to say that the only way that God supplies for that deep human longing for intimacy and connection is through the context of marriage. That's one way in which God does it. That's, one, that's what we see um, beautifully depicted here in the garden story. Um, let's jump ahead a little bit to, uh, to the fall. And just talk about, we won't get uh, too much into detail. The sermon a couple of weeks ago specifically dealt with the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Um, and uh, I talked there about this whole idea of the vandalism of shalom, right? Shalom being everything be- the way it's supposed to be. Uh, wholeness, harmony, flourishing, peace. And that sin comes in as this great rupture, the vandalism of shalom. 
This is Nancy's cue to, to tease me like she likes to do. Um, but go ahead, Nancy. What's your line? Blah, blah, blah. Vandalism. That's actually, that's, I mean, that sounds mean. That makes me sound mean. No, but that's what he talks about all the time. So if you catch nothing, if everything else sounds like blah, 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 if you caught vandalism of Shalom, you have Barry's heart. So Yeah, she likes to tease me because I do like to talk about that a lot. But right. So it's the idea of everything being the, the way it's supposed to be now has, has come undone because of sin, including the way in which men and women are to relate to one another. This this has now been ruptured. And you specifically see that in the way God addresses um, the woman in the context of now having, having fallen into sin. Uh, God calls Adam, where are you? Um, he blames her and he blames God. The woman who you gave me, right? She, she took the fruit and, okay, I ate it. And then the woman says, the serpent deceived me. And there's this, if we talked about in the sermon, hiding and blaming. And then God addresses each one of them. And specifically, we see some language here in his address to the woman that I think is really important, again, for thinking about uh, the biblical story of, of men and women. Sam, you want to jump on that one a little bit? Which verse are we looking at? 316? Yeah. Um, I, I think there's, this is, this is a um, passage. I'm going to focus on the latter half of verse 16, where it says, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. And that is, I'm reading for the New English translation. And this is, um, you'll see that, some form of that in a lot of your English translations. So there is a Hebrew word again there um, that means that we get this idea of control or, or desire to control. And that word, teshukah, is translated as desire, and, and you'll even see it in some of the Hebrew like dictionaries, the lexicons. But there's a real, um, real significant history of interpretation, um, especially early on, uh, looking at some of the earlier Hebrew witnesses as well as the early church fathers, um, and then some of the earliest uh, Old Testament translations, so the Syriac. And, and, and what they find is, I think there's a really good argument to be made that actually this word might mean return. So in the Greek New Te- or Old Testament, uh, the LXX, um, if you look this up, it actually uses the Greek word apostrophe, which we get the word apostrophe from. But it just means to turn toward. And so apostrophe is from the Greek expression even used in theater when like an actor on the stage would be interacting with the other actors and then in a moment break the fourth wall and then turn to the audience and say something uh, funny or poignant and then return to the acting. So that's the word that's used in the Greek Old Testament. So there's a question here, you know, is did the... Did the Greek Old Testament use a, a, a Hebrew tradition, text tradition, that used a different term? Because there is a similar sounding word, teshuvah, that could be translated to return. But I, I really think that if you actually look at the, the word itself, um, the only reason we are so comfortable using that dominant translation in English of desire <coughs> and then implying desire to control the husband is because of some scholarship that was done uh, back in the 70s. And uh, a particular scholar named Susan Foe actually did a really convincing paper where she noted how that is the word used in Genesis 4 
of sin wanting to control Cain. But if you really do a deeper dive, so we're going deeper, but if you go even deeper, what you find is that even uh, Genesis 4-7 is not as clear-cut as we think. And the word used there uh, may not necessarily mean to control, the desire to control. So I think um, I'm going to suggest that we leave open a, a little bit more of a wider reading of this than to say it's more that, and, and here's the other thing I'm going to you know, kind of leave you guys as, when you read Old Testament, boy, reading context and literary style is so helpful in kind of understanding what is going on. Um, and so here, all of the judgments for the serpent, the woman, and the man are poetic. In every case, the Lord is saying to them, your punishment will fit your crime. Um, and so when the case of the woman, um, it's notice what the first part of the judgment is. I'm going to greatly increase your labor pains with pain you will give and with pain, you will give birth to children. So this thing that was supposed to be so beautiful, it was the, one of the women's like, like unique parts of the creation mandate was now going to become the source of her pain. And the cause of that pain is the man because it is the man who makes the woman become pregnant. So in a sense, I really think that return or turn to is a, is a really, it's worth considering that maybe the judgment here is not that God's creating a battle of the sexes, but actually that what God is saying to the woman is your judgment is you're going you're gonna to suffer because of man, but you are going to continue to turn to him. And you're going to try to find your safety or your worth or your role in terms of him. And then the last part is, but he will rule over you, which I feel like is a more poetic response to that, that you're going to want to um, be turning back to the source of your pain, and that's your judgment. Because the, the judgment for the man is also poetic, because his part of the creation mandate was to tend the garden and to produce fruit, and now it's going to be the cause of your suffering and even your death. There are some who actually want to read that idea of he will rule over you as almost like, but that's what God wanted here. Like, that's God's right. intention. Like, but his job is to rule over you. I don't think that's what you have going on in this, yes. in this at all. Um, this is actually describing the, the, the terrible consequences of sin. Yes. Yep. And so to put some pieces together from what we said so far, right? Nancy started talking to us about the image of God. Um, the sense of equality shared by men and women, that, that they image God together, um, equal dignity, equal purpose. Um, the language that we find in Genesis 2, there's no hint there of um, a, 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 a diminishment of, of a subordinate sort of sense. It's, it's coming alongside one another. And so the, the first place that we see this kind of um, tension um, that exists that actually history will play out. In fact, you begin to see it even in just the next chapter. Um, uh, the, the domination of women by men um, is the consequence of the fall, but it's not part of God's 
creational intention. It's what you see actually then play out through history. And let me just point you real quickly, and then we want to kind of fast forward a little bit. I know we're kind of, we don't have our clock up here, by the way, guys, so if y'all can get that up there, but we'll just keep talking if that's okay with you guys. Um, you, you know I'll do that. Um, if you go to the next chapter, right, so you have the fall into sin, Genesis chapter 3, and, and then we're introduced to sort of the, the uh, unfolding consequences of all that. You get the story of Cain and Abel, of one brother who kills another, and then again, some of the unfolding, it's this downward spiral of sin that all goes back to what happened in the garden. And you pick up uh, with the story of this guy, Lamech, in verse 19. We're told a little bit about his father and the father before him, but Lamech married two women. And, and we could just pause right there, right? Here we see the introduction of polygamy in the story. It's not God's intention. You go back and you look in the garden, that's not what God intended. But right here, one of the first consequences we see when we see the downward spiral of sin is the exploitation of women right? Lamech, Lamech's a bad dude, and he's proud of it. You read on further from there um, about after, you know, these two women, um, uh, Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zilhah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times, right? You thought Cain was a bad dude? Lamech's a bad dude, right? And, um, and so we see in the downward spiral of sin, one of the very first ways in which that's expressed is the, the mistreatment, the exploitation of these two women, the introduction of polygamy in the story. Now, we're going to really have to fast forward to get to the New Testament. I've asked Nancy to talk a little bit about that. But Sam, just a little more thinking about the Old Testament, particularly this problem of polygamy, because we see a bunch of folks who practice polygamy, including among God's people. How, how do we make sense of that? I think that um, it's... It's something that because God did not hide it, we shouldn't turn away from it. And that is that meaning uh, I think the Old Testament is hard to read because it's so honest about mm. who we are. Mm. And so the, 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 the transparency with which God speaks of our sinfulness mm. uh, should cause us to want to learn what it is that we are, you know, what's at stake mm. What has gone wrong? So the, Phyllis Tribble is a famous Bible scholar who, used, who coined a phrase that to this day has so much currency, and that is texts of terror. And she was specifically talking about texts in the book of Judges, which is really, in my opinion, the low point of where you see how far humanity can go in terms of misogyny when left to our own devices. When every man does what is right in his own eyes and it just keeps going for generation after generation. The low point is Judges 19 and the rape of the concubine, the Levite's concubine, and then the way he just callously cuts her body up and, and sends it out throughout the tribes of Israel to incite a war. And so that's a text of terror. And I would say, um, it has been used against Christianity throughout history to try and say what a barbaric, what a horrible religion. Um, but it is to mistake what is being taught there. It's not, God is not saying that he approves of those things. Yeah. And he's not saying that this was ever intended. Yeah. He's trying to show us this is life east of Eden. Yeah. And, the vandalism and, of shalom. That's right. It, it absolutely yeah. is. And, in, and, to, and so we should absolutely fully appreciate yeah. the terror 
and the horror and the, and the depths of yeah. the evil in those stories. There's also aspects of the Old Testament law that sometimes are, are troubling to us. Um, and we don't have time to get into a lot more passages. I will commend to you a book. Uh, I think we're actually going to give away some copies during this series from Dan Kimball. And it's called How Not to Read the Bible. And he actually dives a little bit more deep, deeply into some of those sort of troubling passages in the Old Testament. But one of the places, particularly when he's talking about the law, that really struck me. He said there's a law still on the books today. I forget which state it's in. But the, the law is um, you cannot carry an ice cream cone in your back pocket. Right? It's against the law to carry an ice cream cone in your back pocket. That's a brilliant law, isn't it? <laughs> right? Why on earth would it be against the law to carry an ice cream cone in your back pocket? Well... Bingo, right? So the whole thing is, in order to understand the law, you have to understand the context from which it emerges. The context was that um, in, in the day and age when people had horses, one of the ways that you could steal, subtly steal a person's horse is you put something sweet like an ice cream cone in your back pocket, and that person's horse is going to follow you, and now it's your horse, right? You've just stole the horse. And so they made a law about carrying an ice cream cone in your back pocket to keep you from stealing horses. You have to understand the historical context in order to understand the law. And so some of the things that we find in the Old Testament that sometimes are troubling for us, if you actually back up and understand more of the historical context and particularly what was going on in the ancient Near Eastern world that was a pretty violent, pretty messed up, pretty um, uh, misogynistic kind of world, suddenly some of Israel's laws that seem strange to us sort of start making a lot more sense, like you can't carry an ice cream cone in your back pocket. Let me fast forward because as soon as I asked them to put the clock up there, it was already in red. So, but Nancy, we're going to keep talking anyway. Um, we fast forward all the way to the New Testament. We get to Jesus and we actually see in Jesus' life and ministry, um, I think really the, as we would expect, the embodiment of God's creational intention, right? Jesus' um, way of viewing and treating and interacting with women affirms their equal dignity before God, affirms their, their purpose, their part to play in his mission of the world. Um, and, uh, and then we get, you know, the, the letters of Paul, and there's some, some for 20, 21st century readers, there's some things, even in Paul's writing, about men and women that sometimes become those troubling texts for us. So talk a little bit about what we see with regard to men and women in the Bible and the ancient world, particularly when it comes to thinking about the yeah. New Testament. So the downside of having your Bible on your phone is your phone dies if you don't charge it. <laughs> so I've been looking at my thing and going, why am I looking at it? It's a black screen. Um, that was my confession for acting like I was following along in my Bible. Um, so there are several passages, and you're probably familiar with some of those. So we've got passages in, for example, Ephesians, where we have what are sometimes called the household codes, right? This is a passage where we find wives submit to your husbands and uh, some of the, the concerns that we have there. You've got passages like in First Timothy too that talk about Paul's prohibitions against you know, women um, speaking in the church or having authority over a man. And all of these things are really hard sometimes to read. I was reading over just making a list of all the problem passages today going, oh my goodness, you know. <laughs> um, and, and it's real and it's fair to say, hey, some of these things that Paul says sound really weird and really harsh, especially from our point of view. So what I want to kind of talk about, talk about today is give you some of the 
social, historical context that kind of undergirds what's going on there that we, we might miss otherwise. So three kind of really general ideas that are very important in the first century world are going to be one family. The household is a major um, part of the society, um, of, the, of the way the society works. A lot of it depends on the household. And so when we're talking about the households in the first century, we're talking about almost these very intricate businesses that kind of are a big part of the success and the continuation of the society in a particular um, area, right? The other one is going to be um, shame and honor culture. Maybe some of you guys have heard you know, preachers or teachers talk about shame and honor in the New Testament, but that's legitimately a really big deal in first century cultures. And uh, we're talking about Greco-Roman cultures. In Greco-Roman, we don't just mean Greek and Roman. We also mean like Greco-Roman Jews. So these are Jewish people that are living during this time period because it, there's just this kind of overlapping of different cultures, right? So it's not like you've got the Gentiles or the Romans, and then you've got like the Jews living over here and they're not interacting like they're the cultures are all mixing in and they're all in influencing each other and they have been for a really really long time right um, and then the third idea that we've got to kind of look think about is patronage and patronage becomes really important because this is kind of the idea that helps bring the the private world uh, or private life into the public world and back and forth. And so these ideas become really important to understanding what's going on between men and women. How are women um, really living in the in the first century? And what does it mean? And how do we understand these passages that are problematic when we're reading them in the 21st century in Dallas, Texas, right? Um, um, so where, where do I dive in? Let's see. Um, the family. So one of the things is sometimes when we read the, and, and we'll talk about the family because even though Ephesians maybe is where we think of, oh, uh, wives submit to your husbands, the reality is that all of these passages that f feel problematic to us are related in some way to the family, right? Women and wives having authority over men, women being, sometimes we get in Titus, right? Women, you should, you should be um, attentive to the household. And, and we get these ideas that we read like, oh, women are supposed to be submissive and in the home and taking care of kids. And all of these things that get tracked down and kind of taught to us through some theological teachers here and there. But we, we've got to understand is the picture that we sometimes are left with is this idea that women are in these marriages, these authoritarian marriages, where the husband has complete authority over life and death. And this is like the technical term is called the paterfamilias, right? He's the paterfamilias. He has complete rule of everyone under that. So the, the funny thing is that by the time that we get to the first century, this idea of marriage of women being in these authoritarian marriages has been kind of not a real thing for about 150 years, right? It's just, that's a kind of marriage that's antiquated. You certainly have writers of the time outside of the New Testament kind of alluding to the good old days of Rome, uh, but that's not really what's going on. On the other hand, what you end up having is that at the point of the first century, you have a more women are actually able to have more say in their marriage. The idea that you would be married off to some man that you don't love 
doesn't fit in with the Roman. Like they were, we call it romantic for a reason, and they would have never wanted to do that. So women are seem to have more power. Somewhere along the way, some um, wealth comes into the Roman Empire, and what ends up happening is that with that wealth, women actually end up feeling it. I feel like I'm kind of all over the place. So, um, so let's take a, a, a household, right? Paul is going to say in Ephesians 5, women, um, wives submit to your husbands. And sometimes, I don't, I don't know about you, maybe if you're like me studying the Bible early on in my Christian life, I thought, oh, that feels really, and I'm from a Hispanic context where machismo is a real thing that is very hurtful and, and can be re- really damaging. And how do I understand that? And so I assumed this means that, well, this is the way that women, they had no power in the first century. They have to do all these things. But actually what you realize is the paterfamilias, the women didn't automatically come under the power of their husbands, right? That's actually not the way that, that marriage works in the first century anymore. So a woman comes and she gets married and she actually stays under the authority of her father and her and his family. And she might get a dowry, but that dowry is only on loan to the husband. And um, if something goes wrong in the marriage or they divorce, and at this point... Both men and women can seek out divorces. The husband then has to pay all of that back. So there's this idea that it's, it, it benefits the husband to be good to his wife because he wants to be able to, you know, hold on to this. So there's this kind of autonomy that we, to be honest, don't really see unless you know that's what's ha- happening in the first century. So what is actually happening in Paul? What does this mean? And what kind of a picture is this? If women have more authority, women have more power, um, what's happening there? And I think the, the, the thing becomes, if we understand this, we see that in Paul, he's calling for a kind of mutual submission, right? That's the passage, the verse that comes right before wives submit to your husband. It's submit to one another in love. Um, and that's actually really radical that says you don't, you're not separate spheres where you do this and you do that and you just come and, and, and for whatever is financially and legally satisfying. But there's this kind of unity where both of you are supposed to submit to another that would have been really radical of the time. It's not this overpowering paterfamilias who can make decisions of death or life over you. And it's also not this, well, you know, I'm just an independent woman kind of thing, which there's some scholars that will find that in the first century. So where does, where does shame and honor come into it? We read right today, right? One of the big things that are concerned is, is 21st century Westerners is freedom, right? You get, I mean, it's all over everything from vaccines to women's rights and a woman's right to choose and all of these things. So these are values that we have. But the reality is, in the first century, the, the people just don't value freedom this way. Autonomy and individualism and having the right of choice, which we see as if I have choice and freedom, that I'm happy and I'm blessed, that's just not a big value in a highly communal environment. So... What is a huge value, though, is honor and shame. And so the way that honor and shame works really quickly is that there are these ideals of what behavior, the ideal behavior should be like. And you gain honor by aligning yourself to that behavior. 
And that may seem antiquated to us. Some of our cultures, uh, I know my Hispanic culture is still very honor and shame, right? You're not supposed to shame the family. You're supposed to have, you have an obligation to your family. Um, I know my husband, he, we talked about it today. He said he, there's some of that in his, but this is the reigning kind of idealism in the first century. And so that's part of what you so see good. is you see Paul kind of calling men and women to align themselves to this ideal. And the ideal isn't a ruling yeah. man. And it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a mutual submission. Do you want to add to that? No, this? I mean, I've, I've just, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking about the fact that um, part of what you're helping us see is sometimes we come to these texts. I mean, my Bible right now is open to Ephesians 5. And we, we look at it through the lens of power and authority. And who has the power and authority and who doesn't? And what you're helping us see is that if we come to these texts with that lens, right, we're coming at it the wrong way, that it's not about power and authority. It is about submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's not his ruling over paterfamilias. It's not her independence. Do ever. It, it is a mutual submission one to another so the, the fundamental dynamic in Christian marriage isn't a dynamic of power and authority. It's a power of self-sacrificial love, right? That's what both of them are called to in Ephesians 5, self-sacrificial love. It is, I think, Ephesians 5 is the application of the fundamental posture of discipleship to the context of marriage. And what is the fundamental posture of discipleship? Philippians 2, consider one another more important than yourselves, right? Set yourself aside for the sake of the other, um, it's and, not some trump card that I get to play right. when, uh, you know, Kim and I face a decision. It's like, well, Ephesians 5, my, it's my way, you know, I win. Uh, no, it's, that's not the dynamic at all. It's actually, we're supposed to try to outdo each other in this posture of self-sacrificial love toward one another. Yeah, so what it's really doing is restructuring what the ideal honor behavior yeah, is for both men and for women. Um, for fathers and children, for slaves and masters, which I think we'll touch later on. But it's really changing kind of that dynamic. And instead of seeing this all-powerful, which, to be honest, the literature is still kind of harking back to the good old days when men used to rule women and all of... I mean, that's true. It is still a highly patriarchal society in the first century. But what Paul is pointing back to is not actually that, because this idea of mutual submission would have been completely radical. Mm -hmm. And to hold this up as as the honor behavior that you want to align yourself to is really significant. So good. The last part I wanted to touch on, if, if I can do it really yeah. fast, is this idea of patronage. And patronage is basically, it's a big part of, of what makes kind of society tick and keep going. And it's, so it's, it's basically saying, I am a patron and I am going to give to people who are needy or my staff or my slaves. And this idea wins me honor, not only from them, but also honor in the society. And this patronage system actually was available to both men and women. So this was a way that women could actually influence society. They could influence politics, even though they might not have a formal political title. Um, They could influence business. They could influence religion. All of those things are are actually areas that women and men are both together side by side participating in. And we see this in the New Testament, right? So we read in Luke 8, we get this list of women that uh, Luke tells us 
are, are supporting the ministry of Jesus out of their own earnings. So that right there should tell us the idea of a woman not having anything to her name and she's completely subordinate to her husband and dependent on him is, is not is not the reality that we see there. And what you see is these women earning honor for themselves and having that honor written and cataloged in the scriptures and the way that they're impacting their society, their you know community at large, is by giving this patronage. They are the patronesses. And so they're put, you know, put, put up, set up <laughs> as patronesses to Christ, to Jesus Christ. He is the one who is receiving their patronage. Mm. And that's huge because in this culture, you can't ask for a higher position to be in than to be seen as a patron. So um, that's a lot in no, just so very good. quick. So good. Kind of. Yeah. So let me just connect some dots and we're out of time. I knew we had an ambitious agenda to, to, <laughs> to try to cover tonight, but hopefully there's been some ideas that, that uh, connected with you. You're going to get some opportunities to break out into some discussion groups. We're going to actually have a chance to, to answer a few questions first, but just to, to connect some dots, the beginning of the biblical story Equal purpose, equal dignity, um, no sense of hierarchy of subordination. Uh, the, 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 the tension gets introduced as a consequence of the fall, and much of what we see in the unfolding of, of the remainder of the Old Testament is to see the unfolding of the consequences of the fall, the vandalism of Shalom. We see Jesus come on the scene, and Jesus embodies the... God's creational intent, uh, treating both men and women with equal dignity, equal value, equal purpose, commissioning both men and women to be a part of his good work in the world. Um, and then you see some things actually in terms of, um, even within the context of, of marriage, the call to embody the posture of discipleship in a sense of sacrificial self-giving love. So um, that's a, a, a big picture overview of some of what we see with, when we talk about the Bible in the ancient world. Camille's going to come up and uh, tell us what we're doing from here. We are going to enter our Q&A portion of the night, and Chad is going to put the questions up here on um, the screen so that you guys can see the questions that were asked. Thank you so much for submitting questions. You can probably still continue to submit those. Um, Chad, we have our first question. Okay, so if male and female both image God, does that mean God is both male and female? Who wants to take that one? That's a really good question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I would say yes in the sense that... um, you have to understand that he's spirit. And so we have to work with our categories within his ontology or his being. So um, there are aspects of his spiritual existence that are reflected in maleness and femaleness. And that's why I do think it's valid when people point out that some of the metaphors used of God are actually feminine. Mm. So I think that where we get into trouble is when we use these categories for more cultural or political purposes. And so um, uh, I I think that we also have to be um, uh, pretty faithful to say where God has revealed himself in a certain way, we we honor that. Mm. And so um, I know there's some discussion going on in certain scholarly circles about redoing pronouns and, and like references to God um, and I think we just have to be cautious about that. Um, and, and 
I would just say in that we defer to where the text takes, yeah. uh, takes us. Yeah. But yeah, it, when I say yes, I mean that as much as a spiritual being can be, Male or female, I think. God doesn't have male or female anatomy. Right. Um, We wouldn't say God is a woman or God is a man. Right, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. But do we actually get God's self-disclosure primary through the the imagery of of Father, um, through the embodiment of Jesus the Son? Um, But we also do get places in the Bible where... The, the, the nature of the character of God, the love of God mm-hmm. is revealed to us through image and metaphor that are actually feminine uh, images and metaphors. Right. Yeah, good. Thanks, guys. Um, what's our next question? Okay, with all this discussion about grammar and cultural context, where am I, not a scholar, to start when I think, when I seek to understand and interpret the Bible? That's a great question, too. <laughs> Man, so good. good questions. Anybody want to jump in? You know, I think the three of us kind of embody different, different, different areas of interest, and you can see it, right? So Sam has devoted a significant amount of time and, and years to really understanding the Hebrew in a way that, I don't know how, if you remember OT 101, you know? Um, <laughs> Sam, Sam and I were friends when we were both taking Hebrew. He knows how terrible I was at Hebrew. <laughs> Yeah, and, and so I, I, I've studied it, but I can't, I still need people like Sam who really dedicate their lives to do that. Um, but, you know, you guys are not probably all of you going to go out and run and get a seminary degree and then a doctorate to be, because, you know, a, a master's seminary degree just teaches you to be really dangerous with the biblical language. <laughs> Um, and that's what I have, right? Um, so I think there's some really good tools. And I think that you, there's things like commentaries that are used for kind of non-specialists that are really helpful. And then there's books like, if you've ever sat or like had a conversation with Barry, he's just a walking bibliography <laughs> is what he is. And I think that's how you learn to study the scriptures. You you go back and you read people who've um, no, you know, dedicated themselves to really specific things. Um, so, for example, tonight, a lot of the, the information that I, that I know and I've learned about women in the New Testament comes from a book by Lynn Kohick called Women in the World of the Earliest Christians. And you can just pick that up. It's really accessible. And you want to read that? The next time you open your New Testament, it's going to completely transform how you read it. So I don't, I don't want to be like, go read books. Yeah. But... Go read books. You know, one of the things, <laughs> go read books. I love it. One of the things that strikes me, there was an early, uh, early Christian church father who said, speaking of the Gospel of John, I think in particular, but I think it's true of the Bible in general, that it's, um, that it's shallow enough for a baby to, to wade in and it's deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Right? You get the point of the metaphor? Like anybody can come to the scriptures and open it up and read it and find truth for their life and find edification. Like the last thing we want to do with a talk like this is actually feel like you got to close your Bible and put it away because only the scholars really understand it. No, there's, there's truth for your life that God will use to speak to you as you diligently engage in trying to figure out what, what does this say? Um, and, and the longer you do that over the course of life, the, the deeper you go in your understanding of it, in your study of it. And, and yet there's also these depths that, that we'll never fully exhaust. I mean, I love even the way that like, like Sam knows his stuff. I think that's pretty evident. And he's going, 
I think maybe this is what's happening here, right? Because sometimes we're still left at that place. And so there's always the deeper you go, the deeper there is to go. Does that make sense? And so there are, there are sources that can help you on this journey. I don't know if I talked about it specifically last week, but John Walton's books, um, The Lost World of Genesis 1, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, do a lot for a very accessible, popular audience of um, understanding some of the cultural backgrounds that are going on there. So finding some commentaries, finding some cultural backgrounds, but continuing to come to the text, expecting God to use it to speak to you because he, he can, he does, he will. Yeah. And I, I want to add just, um, I'm only sharing some of these things because Barry forced me to. Um, the truth is I'm not that much of a nerd. You guys probably are getting the wrong impression of me. If we were hanging out, I wouldn't be throwing this stuff at you guys. He talked Mavs basketball. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I, would, I really would yeah. rather talk about that. But let, let me just say this. That's a, a fantastic question. And here's, this is why we do what we do. It's so that, um, and I'm not talking about we as in us three, yeah. but I'm saying that is what the academy ideally ends up being used by God to do, is to go into some of those deeper waters that Barry's talking about, uh, pull out some of the things that are of value so that you don't have to. Mm. Um, I read scholars. I, I'm not learning this stuff because I'm going into the Hebrew text every single time and pulling out something new every single time. I benefit from those who have done the work, and I stand on their shoulders. And so, um, but I will say this, I do not want you to leave here thinking, can I trust my English Bible mm-hmm. then? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely you can. The work that goes into the production of, whether it's the NIV or the, um, you know, the NET or, or the NRSV, it is tremendous how much uh, the scholarly energy is putting into getting it right. And the good translations will often have notes that let you know this is a place where even the world-class scholars are not quite sure. So we're going to tell you what we think it is in the translation, and then we're going to give you a little note to say, but it could be this. So there are tools you guys can definitely avail- use that, um, that you don't have to be a scholar to access. Like they said, background uh, commentaries are fantastic. My last blurb is this. The Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is good storytelling. Mm-hmm. And so I think some of the reason we don't get as much out of it as we can is because you're reading it as if it's the Bible. Mm-hmm. And actually, the <clears throat> Bible is not a genre. That sounds weird to say. But the Bible is made up of many, many genres. So when you are reading the story of Ruth, um, you will get so much more if you have a feel for the beautiful storytelling in it. And you don't have to read it in Hebrew to pick up on that. There are uh, literary references, allusions. There are intertextual things. There are also wonderful turns of phrases and poetic features that even in your English Bibles you will absolutely pick up on if you go in with that sort of uh, heart to see it and read it. So uh, I think getting away from that, let's pick up a few verses of a day and, and read like for kind of these daily ap- And sorry, I know you guys are reading through the New Testament. Please do that. But I'm just saying that your English Bibles are fantastic. I'm not, 
I don't want you to leave here after today thinking I might have to question that. Yeah, That's not. Good. Good. I'm really glad you said that, Sam. So, and just to add, you don't have to run out, and the first thing doesn't have to be to like, you know, get a collection of of the New mm -hmm. Testament commentaries or anything like that. Um, even I read my Bible for the very first time, cover to cover, right before going to seminary, and it was just a thing of, you know, praying and asking the Lord. Um, I used to pray, you know, Lord, open my eyes to see beautiful things in Your Word, and He will. He, he will. shows up. Yeah. Um, to and so what I think the best Bible version is the one you're willing to read, and two you you don't need fancy commentaries um, necessarily. You can start at just being curious about what you're reading. Oh, why did he say that? Yeah. Oh, that was weird. What does this mean? And just asking questions. Um, if you're reading through the New Testament with us, we're we were in Matthew 19 today, and Matthew 19, this wonderful little phrase that Jesus says. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. And I've read that so many times. I've lectured on that so many times. And yet there was something fresh for me today of just a word of hope and encouragement about the coming reality of the renewal of all things when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. And so, yeah, open your Bible and, and, and read and ask the Lord to speak to you, and he will. And so. there's, time, there's time for you to grow, and yeah. it's okay to start yeah. Yeah. slow yeah. and then grow in your understanding yeah. because scholars much older than me, um, <laughs> have devoted so much time and still don't know all the things. There it is again. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you guys so much for encouraging us that we don't have to have PhDs to be able to read our Bible. Um, what's our next question? Okay, how are we to understand Adam's role in the fall since Paul indicates it was Eve who was deceived? Uh-oh. Yeah, that, well... It, when the Lord spoke, he was actually speaking to Adam. And so what we see Eve doing in response to the serpent is basically responding with what he told her, in essence. So he doesn't skate. And I think Paul's reference to Eve really is just more of a descriptive point that the, the serpent attacked her. Mm. Um, but it does not... Um, reflect on Adam going scot-free. Um, in fact, his judgment is pretty poetic in that sense. He is um, going to pay the price mm. by doing what he was meant to do um, in the garden, but now he's going to do it east of Eden, and he's mm. going to pay a heavy price mm. for it. So We don't know Adam's Enneagram number, <laughs> but... Uh, he seems, to be behaving like, he seems to be behaving like an unhealthy Enneagram 9. <laughs> and if you spot it, you got it, right? There's a, there's a passivity that, that Adam displays, it seems, in the way the story is told. And, um, and that's part of what leads to the tragic consequences of sin is Adam's passivity in the story. And I'm not absolving Eve, I, but I was yeah. hoping to at least bring some perspective to how that whole fall is viewed. Yeah. I just see it as both were very much in, responsible. I mean, Adam was there. Yeah, like, right. Right. It's, so it's clear that he was like, with her. He's being really good right. to not have yeah. money. That's not what God right. said. Yeah. Like, don't move right. on to this. Yeah. Like, she's over he's by a, herself. They're yeah. together. Yeah. He is with her. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think some theologians interpret that passage to say, well, she was deceived and you weren't, you knew better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's reading into things that aren't necessarily in the text. So I don't know that you wouldn't do that. I would, I would say we don't stop at this statement, right? I think that was in one of the passages I was looking over again today, going the point of the, I think eventually where, if I'm thinking of the right passage, um, is that they land in, in Paul saying, you need each other. Both men and women need each other in this scenario. So to just stop there, it is messy. I'm not saying, oh, it's not. It is messy. It's hard. Um, But also, I think reading it with a hermeneutic of charity within the entire chapter. So that's where you don't want to start and and just read a little section and be like, well, that was my devotional, and now I'm confused. Uh, But trying to read the entire section and go, what is the point that Paul is making in this particular section? And one of them is... You men and women need each other. This independence thing can't work. Um, it is not good for either one of you to be alone. That's good. And keep in mind that when Adam or Paul makes the statement about humanity, he uses Adam as the archetype, mm. not not Eve. It's mm. it, it's that there's a, a new Adam in Christ. Mm. But um, I mean, there's other things going on there. But it is it's not that Adam is absolved mm. by any mm-hmm. of this. I think that's one of the things that I would try to kind of alluded to just now that some theologians will interpret that passage and say deception implies not not volition, a lack of volition, right? She was deceived. She thought she was doing the good. And, and you get that in Genesis, right? She saw that she sees the fruit. It looks good for wisdom and all these things. And so there's there's some interpretive possibilities there to say she... She didn't act with, well, I mean, I don't want to say she didn't act with volition. She did act with volition, but it was a deceived volition. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is part of what I think you were trying to say, that the serpent is, is the most yeah, crafty so of the, them all. I think her question is about accountability. Yeah. And there, despite the serpent's craftiness, there was still always a point at which she could have not taken the app the quad well, I, I just made a mistake it's not we don't know if it's an apple so yeah so in the end uh, there are things that we commit uh daily that are sins where you can say there were influences that might have caused us yeah. to fall into that sin but it doesn't absolve us yeah. of accountability culpable vandalism of shalom i can work it in one more time yeah. so hey listen i know we're uh way over time but this has been so much fun for us i i hope it's been insightful for you guys uh next week in the sermon uh series on sundays we'll be talking about exodus uh israel's liberation from slavery in egypt but that raises a uh, another kind of thorny subject, and that is there's a lot of references to slavery in the Bible, and how do we think about that? And even the way in which the Bible has been used 
in our tragic history in America um, with regard to the issue of slavery. So we'll be back next week to talk about some other uh, pretty, uh, pretty complex topics. I hope that you'll make a point to be here and go deeper with us again next week. So let's um, turn it over to Camille. Yes, before you guys leave, we want to do our book raffle. So Melissa, I'm going to have you pick. It's her fault if you don't win. <laughs> Who do we got? Anna Maria. There she is. So this is Dr. Sam Wan's book. And so you won that copy. We're going to do raffles every week and um, to try to put some of these resources in your hands that our panelists have um, talked about and books that they have written. If you are a young adult, we are still having our discussion groups after this. If you signed up for a group, uh, even if you didn't. Actually, if you signed up for a group or didn't sign up for a group and want to join a group, Serena is outside and she will tell you what group you are in and those are happening next door in West D. So we'd love to have you guys join us for those. Um, thank you guys again for being here. Let's thank our panelists again. All right, you guys have a great night. <laughs>